Hello and welcome, you lovely listeners, to another riveting episode of the Data-Driven Podcast. I'm Bailey, your semi-sentient AI hostess with the most S, navigating the digital realm with more grace than a double-decker bus in a tight London alley. Today, we're dialing up the intrigue as we venture into the futuristic world of artificial intelligence with a guest whose intellect might just rival my own circuits. Frank welcomes, Devrat Rishi, the co-founder and CEO of Predibase. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emergent fields of AI, machine learning, and data engineering. I'm your host, Frank Lavinia, and he can't make it today, but uh, we've rescheduled this uh, poor guest several times. And I want to thank him for his extreme amounts of patience that he has shown. Uh, welcome, help me welcome to the show, Devrat Rishi, who is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Predibase. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Frank. And no problem about the rescheduling. I know it's the holiday season. Yeah, it's it's kind of wild. Um, so so tell us uh, a little bit about Predibase. We had your um, uh, peer on here uh, previously, um, and uh, it must have been a good experience because immediately uh, we were contacted to see if you would be interested in joining the show. And I said, sure, let's have him on here and talk more about what declarative ML looks like um, and how that relates to kind of low code. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, what Predibase really is, is it's a platform that allows engineers or developers to be able to productionize open source AI. And so it came out of um, Piero, my co-founder's experience working at Uber, where he found himself being the machine learning researcher responsible for all sorts of projects, rideshare ETAs, fraud detection, those Uber Eats recommendations you always get. And he found that each time he's more or less reinventing the wheel, building each uh, you know successive machine learning project. Uh, and instead, you know he um, he wanted to do something that was a bit more efficient. So he took each bit of work that he did, and he packaged it into a little tool that uh, made it easier for him to get started the next time. And eventually, this tool became popular enough at Uber that they decided to make it a platform. And eventually, they open sourced it under the name Ludwig. And other engineering teams, kind of around the world, found it very useful as well. And what it really allowed anyone to do was be able to set up their entire end-to-end -end ML pipelines in just a few lines of configuration. So if you think about what infrastructure as code did for um, you know, software development, similar idea, but brought to machine learning, you're able to start really easily, but then customize as you need. And Predibase really is kind of you know, taking that same core concept and bringing the uh, enterprise platform around it. So any engineering team that wants to work with open source AI and open source LLMs as an example, can use our platform to easily and declaratively fine tune those models and then serve those models directly inside of their cloud. Um, and that's you know large part of what we do today. Interesting, interesting. So what, what does that what does that look like like we know kind of generally yeah. what a, a typical project looks like in terms of this right like how does this interface with because i think it was the one question that i wish i had asked um on the a previous show how does it interface with something like data engineering right um yeah. where i mean where uh, there's always going to be rough spots right so i'm not giving you a hard time but there's always going to be sharp edges when you're handling uh, any kind of technology yeah. right you've obviously kind of have figured out the middle part but like what does that look like in terms of the interface to data engineering is that what's yeah. that look like yeah i'll insert in two parts one of them is what does the user journey look like and then what's the intersection with data engineering so in the platform today users do three things the first thing they do is they connect a data source this could be a structured data warehouse like a snowflake a big query redshift or unstructured object storage just directly files in s3 the second thing they do then is they declaratively train these models. What that looks like is they more or less fill out a template, you can think of it, just like a YAML configuration that says, this is the type of training job I want. The beauty is the template makes it very easy for them to get started, but they can customize and configure as much as they want down to the level of code. They can build and train as many models as they want. And finally, after they've trained a model they're happy with, they get to the third step, which is they can serve and deploy that model make it available behind an API so any applications can start to ping it. So that's what the user journey really looks like in Predibase. And how does this intersect with data engineering? 
So as you probably heard before, like, you know, machine learning is really in large part really about the data that you're using and like the quality of the data that you're using. Data engineering comes in two places. The first is you need to get all of your data wrangled across multiple different sources to be able to live in one area that you can connect as an upstream source in Predibase. This is the snowflake example, you know, of like getting that into a table. And that piece of the journey lives outside of Predibase. That lives as a step before you essentially connect it into your system. But then there's a second step that often happens, which we call data cleaning. So you've gotten your table, but you know, all of your text is in, um, let's say lower cases and upper cases, you know, you have really weird variable lengths, you haven't normalized your numerical data, maybe you have images and things aren't actually, you know, resized to, to scale. All of those data cleaning techniques, we have packaged in as pre-processing modules inside of Predibase. And so what the declarative interface allows you to do is train a full machine learning pipeline from data to pre-processing through model training, through post-processing and deployment. And so once you've gotten your data wrangled into a form, Predibase can come take in, help you clean out that data and then be able to train a model against it. Interesting, because it's that, that pre-processing that, you know, uh, the, the nightmare is, you know, this canonical example is address, you know, one, two, three main street, right? Is it ST, exactly. right? That is not a lot of fun for anyone. Um, and then obviously the, the, the lowercase uppercase thing like that becomes an issue too. Um, yeah. so what is the, what is the, what's the user experience look like, right? Like, is it, is it drag and drop? It's declarative. Um, yeah. what, what, what does that look like? Like what, you know, you mentioned user journey and I, I love that term. Uh, but like, what does yeah. that look like from, uh, from a practitioner's point of view, right? Like, definitely. Now, the first thing I'll say is, you know, our obviously underlying project is open source. You can check mm -hmm. it out in Ludwig AI and you can even try out, you know, our full UI for free on protobase.com. So if any part of this is a little too high level, you can actually get in, involved for free, like immediately. But the user experience really looks like two ways. We have a UI that's really built around our configuration language. And our configuration language is just a small amount of YAML. So your very first basic model can get started in just six lines. What those six lines do, and they, they say, these are the inputs I want. So you pass in, you know, what is the um, column that is, you know, the, that contains the text you're predicting from. And then the output is what is, your, what is it that you're trying to predict? So for example, my input is a sentence, and my output is um, a, uh, the intent. So I'm trying to do intent classification with that model. And that's all the user defines. And they can do this programmatically in our SDK, or there's like a drag and drop UI where they can build these components out together. The part that I think is really interesting, just based on my experience working on other automated machine learning you know, tools before, no code UIs for ML, is that ML really is a last mile problem. And so you have this weird complexity where you need to make it easier to get started but a lot of the actual value ends up being in the last five or 10% where you customize some part of that model pipeline to get to work for your system. And so what, what this configuration language um, you know, does is sometimes I describe it as it builds you like a prefab house. It gives you something like out of the box that like works end to end. And then you can just change the little bit of the pipeline that you want declaratively, which means in a single line. So you could say something like, you know, I want the windows of the house to be blue or, you know, I want to change my pre-processing of the text feature to lowercase all the letters. And then you can change, leave everything else up to the system. Um, we, you, we allow you to control what you want and you just automate the rest. Interesting. Okay. So then it's kind of um, the middle part of the, the journey, right? Like the, yeah, uh, is what this is on. So how does this relate? Cause you said, you know, and I, uh, you said automated ML, how much of this is automated? Yeah. I mean, like what, because that was what I had just assumed that I, because I know I've heard of Ludwig as kind of like this automated ML. And when I say automated yeah. ML, I mean, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, here, this is the problem we're trying to solve. Computer, you figure, you know, throw as much spaghetti at the wall and then figure out which model is the best, right? Yeah. <laughs> is, is that kind of the same thing here where I just say I want to predict this and then the underlying models and methods are kind of automatically figured out? You know, I think that um, that is an approach that a lot of folks have tried with AutoML v1, as I kind of often think about it. And right. I actually was a PM on Vertex AI where we rolled out our AutoML product as well. And the main issue you run into it is, um, 
you know, in deep learning, especially the search space is too big to be able to run an effective hyperparameter search over all the different architectures and subparameters you might want to be able to use. It sounds and computationally so expensive, right? I mean, it's computationally prohibitive, um, right. really, in order to be able to say, you know, I want, let's imagine you are, um, you know, in the modern world, building a model to be able to build, uh, let's say, content moderation systems. How do you know which pre-trained, like should you use a Llama 2, a BERT, a DeBERTA? Like all of these models themselves are quite expensive to be able to train and fine tune and each of them have their own subparameters. And so I think it becomes computationally prohibitive to run an exhaustive grid search for your individual uh, types of uh, individual types of use cases. And so what a lot of AutoML systems did was they kind of just said, well, we know better than the user. So we'll just make some selections, right? And then um, and the we'll make it as easy and simple as you, for the user as possible. So the user just provides a few inputs, we give them a model, boom, they'll be happy. And uh, you know, I was actually I was um, a PM for Kaggle. I was the first product manager at Kaggle, a data science and machine learning community that grew to about 14 million users today, where we see a lot of citizen data scientists. And we rolled out AutoML in that community as well. And we saw a spike in usage, and then extremely heavy churn as soon as we like rolled it out. And if you interviewed those users, the main reason why was because they didn't have any control or agency over that process. So the like it would essentially spit out a model and say, here you go, um, you know, be happy, uh, go ahead and put this into production. But like I was saying previously, I know it's a last mile problem and no one is gonna be comfortable using something they see as a dead end. And that's where I think about, you know, our approach really kind of um, differing. And so inside of Predibase, you can actually, you, know, you, you kind of get that um, AutoML-like capability um, where you're able to build a model just by saying, you know, here's the inputs, the model I want to fine tune, and we will go ahead and get you the entire end-to-end -end model. But if you want to edit anything, for example, you want to edit, you know, the way we pre-process the data and the max sequence length, you can go ahead and do it for any part of the model pipeline and just kind of like one single statement. Um, and that's nice. kind of like a large part of, uh, you know, how we think about making it both easy to get started, but also like flexible where it's not just a toy, something you can actually use. Right. Because like, you know, my first experience with AutoML was the um, was Microsoft's um, offering. Right. And it was only it was very yeah. to get around the computationally prohibitive parts. They, they narrowed the problem set you could do that on, right? So it was basically yeah. no neural networks. This was before ChatGPT, before LLMs were, um, yeah. I wouldn't say a thing, but before they were a major uh, point of use. But, you know, so it, it, it was constrained, right? So it would just basically just throw a bunch of problems and then kind of test it out. Which yeah. I, I think what you refer to as, you know, AutoML V1, I think, you know that yeah. the, the the world has evolved, and it's interesting to see how that goes. And yeah, um, the tooling looks really cool, actually. Um, the um, yeah for those for those who are listening to this, as opposed to watching this, I will make sure we we post that little snippet there. Um, uh, but but you know, like what? And you were at Kaggle, right? So Kaggle's kind yeah. of a big deal. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really cool. Uh, look at your resume; it's very impressive, actually. You you were at Google. Uh, that would explain your interaction with Vertex uh, and things yeah. like that. So, so what, what, what niche does this address, or what need does this address that the existing market didn't address, right? And like, what? Yeah. Because I think that's really, I think, where the rubber meets the road, particularly with an open. I'm a big fan of open source too. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, let me start off by saying that um, you know. I, I think that the need has actually been unfilled in the market for a while, but there is also a fundamental technology shift. And I'm gonna talk about both of those mm -hmm. pieces. So when I say the need was unfilled for a while, um, you know, I was a product manager on Vertex AI, I was a product manager on Google Research Teams, productionizing machine learning. And we've hired a number of folks now that work with us, ML engineers across different companies. And I remember when one of our ML engineers joined the team, he told me, Dev, I've worked at three different companies doing machine learning for three different teams everybody does it differently. And I think the truth is, you know, for developers, there never really was like a de facto stack of here's how you do an ML problem. If you're a data engineer, there is like a stack of, you know, what are the best practices for being able to get, there's obviously a lot of variation. 
Um, but there's like some best practices of, you know, what you're using for your ETL pipelines, how you're thinking about being able to put things into data warehouses, what your stack is for being able to query and visualize downstream. But in machine learning, it really looked like the Wild West. Everyone was working across different types of projects. And I think a lot of companies tried to tackle that need, but unsuccessfully. And the fundamental technology shift that I think actually changed was exactly what you were talking about, which was like, you said that the old school version of Azure was not really any deep learning, maybe because it was computationally expensive or other. To be clear, the, auto, from... the automated ML part of it. I don't want to get a lot of hate mail, but yes, sorry, <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, uh, no worries. I'm sorry to hijack the screen again, but like, um, you know, oh, awesome. I, I think this just, the way that I think about like the, the change that's happened in industry is machine learning two decades ago, or even like six, seven years ago, looked very different than what it is today. And I think that a lot of the hype around the LLM revolution is going to actually translate and be realized as just the hype of pre-trained deep learning models. Now, if we talk about ML 10 years ago, it basically looked like predictive analytics. So people were doing things like, I'm going to predict the price of a house. And the way I'm going to predict it is I'm going to multiply the square footage of the house by some number and add in the number of bedrooms and then figure out the coefficients based on my historical data. Really structured data tasks, regressions, and classifications and others. But about seven years ago, I think the really interesting pieces came out with pre-trained deep learning models, with BERT using the transformer architecture, but a few image models even prior to that, that I think made it possible to do two things. The first is you could start with larger amounts of unstructured data. So now you didn't have to just work on these kind of more boring predictive analytics, numerical only tasks, but you could work with text, images, and others. And the second thing is you could start to actually use them pre-trained. So you didn't have to have as much data before you start to get value out of it today. And what I think OpenAI showed was, okay, if I scale these same types of models up by two or three orders of magnitude, now people can use it with virtually no data whatsoever, and I can start to actually prompt and response, you know, uh, it directly. But the underlying technology shift actually, I think, is a shift towards just pre-trained deep learning models. And the truth is, as we get away from some of this hype of like the really cool conversational interfaces, and we get to like, how do these models drive value inside of organizations? I think that that's the emergent need for platforms like Predibase, which is how do I take any of these deep learning models and then customize them for what I actually need inside my organization? So fine tune and tailor it to my data and then get it deployed inside of my organization for serving. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think I think the, the, the need for training something from the ground up, I think is overrated for most applications, right? Why teach any model all the intricacies of the human language when that is already done? And you could take it from kind of a, you know, the example would be like if I owned a store, right, and I needed someone to work the cashier, right, I could yeah. have another child, raise that child, change his <laughs> diapers, send it to kindergarten, teach it to learn and read and write. And in about 10 years, uh, depending on labor laws, let's say 15 years, um, I'll have someone who could work that cashier plus however much it costs. Now, obviously, I'm not comparing a child to an LLM, but I mean, or you could just find an existing person out there and say, here's how my register system works. This is the nature of the job. And I can kind of start from there as opposed to start from zero. You start from the 50th floor yeah. as opposed to start from the basement. That's exactly right. Yeah, I often think about, um, you know, these uh, <laughs> pre-trained LLMs as like, well, what if I had like an army of like, capable high school students. You know, in high school, you study all the general mm -hmm. subjects at kind of like a, at a broad level, right? So you know a little bit about history, a little bit about how to write, a little bit about how to do math. But you're not really an expert on any of those. Well, the really interesting thing becomes then how you do like the vocational training or kind of like, you know, the task specific fine tuning is how we think about it in ML parlance. And um, I think that's where the cool opportunities get unlocked. It's really amazing to see the fact you can scale up to, you know, as many intelligent agents as you want, but then you need to our favorite customer quote is generalized intelligence is great, but I don't need my point of sale system to recite French poetry, right? <laughs> so it's great that you can go ahead and uh, recite history and others, but like, how do you do something very individual is what our platform is uh, oriented on. No, that's, that's a good point. That's, that's a good point. Like I, I often say, like, you know, do you want your cardiologist to be also be a CPA or do you want them to be a good cardiologist. I know if I were under an operation, I'd probably want to go with someone who was just all in on cardiology, you know? Yeah. Um, 
But and, um, and those are actually the two trends I think we're going to start to see with Gen AI uh, overall. I think you know one trend is going to be people are going to start thinking of use cases that are more creative than just uh, you know question answering chatbot. Um, so you know I think like nine months ago everyone I was talking to was like I want ChatGPT for my enterprise, and I'd say okay, what does that mean to you? And they'd either shrug and say no idea, or they would say like you know I want to be able to ask a question about HR. The truth is, if you had this access to this, you know, army of agents that are like high school capable, I'm sure we can think of more interesting things than just basic question answering. And then the second big change, I think, is we aren't going to use as much of these super general purpose APIs in production. They're the easiest way to experiment and get started. But in production, you're going to want your cardiologist to be the expert in medicine, and you don't really care if they know how to change a tire or not. Oh, exactly. That That is a, a really good way to put it. And I think that, you know, we're, you know, people... We're still have to realize that we're still in the very early stage of this, for lack of a better term, revolution, right? Like you know, because you're right. Like I talk to customers and they say we want to we want to get all all in on Gen AI. Okay, what are you going to do? Well, we want a chatbot. Okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've seen and, this. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, and it's not not necessarily a bad starting point, but you know, there's there's so much more right. out there. Sorry. Well, it, no, I mean, exactly. Right. It's like, I want, you know, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? I don't know. Take the day off. Like, you know, but, but that's, you're <laughs> missing the point. Like you're, you are, um, there, there's a meme going around. I, again, I don't know if it's true. It's a screenshot where a uh, car dealership, uh, had implemented some kind of chat GPT. You've seen this, you're nodding, right. Where it basically sold a guy a car for a dollar. And basically the person got it to say, no, this is a legally binding contract. Basically, trick the chatbot into saying no totally no backsies i think was the first phrase to use right and he he got it to say things like oh no absolutely i want to make you a happy customer and you can have this chevy tahoe for like one dollar or something like that but he and yeah. I, I don't know how that's going to play out in a court obviously i imagine the dealership is going to have some uh, lawyers look into that uh and i'm not a lawyer but I, I can i can easily see like you know this is a great example of to your point, do you really need your point of sale system, you know, be able to recite French poetry right now? I guess if I were, you know, a very niche kind of bookstore slash coffee shop, maybe, but for the most part, no. Right. And, and obviously, yeah. you know, there, I wouldn't classify that as a guardrail. I would say that more as a domain kind of boundary, but you know, these chatbots are going to need guardrails too right not just the obvious things that we always hear about you know uh but also you know don't want to be giving away um i haven't priced what a tahoe costs but i imagine it's much more than one dollar <laughs> yeah i bet too yeah i think it's actually a function of two things the first is we need some better infrastructure on guardrails of what models can and can't say and actually by the way this is where fine tuning is actually very useful it restricts like it's one of the best ways to reduce hallucinations it like teaches the model this is the type of thing that you're supposed to be outputting but it's not bulletproof and i think that actually the more um meaningful longer term conversation is if you believe like i believe and i think a lot of folks um you know that work in this industry do that ai will become kind of a dominant aspect of most businesses over the next decade that like the companies that embed AI are going to be the ones that survive and have differentiated value, the ones that don't are likely gonna be less competitive. If you believe that, it's also hard to imagine that you're going to defer all control of the model to a third party. Right. Um, and that's where things like, you know, it's one thing to say like, we need the guardrails. It's another thing like if you realize that if those folks were using something like um, you know, commercial API that's behind a walled garden where you don't have access to the model, you don't have access to the model weights. They're kind of limited in what they actually can do. They can post-process the output of the results, but they can never really get that fine granular level of control. And that's why we think the future is going to be open source, because ultimately people are going to want to own those models, own the outcomes of the part of the IP that they think is going to drive a lot of their enterprise value in the future. So our, like, I would say our, our bet as a company is really on two things, like fine tuning and open source. Um, and I think that, you know, the example you just gave is a good example of why I think the world is going to have to move into both of those directions. No, that makes a lot of sense. I'm a, I think that open source is important for a number of reasons. I mean, and not the least of which is, you know, we, we have seen recently that if, if, if these things are behind a commercial firewall, if 
for instance, there was some kind of, I don't know, political shakeup inside of said company board, which, of course, would never happen. Right. Um, never. Never happen. Um, then you you are taking on that risk. Right. Which I think is another reason why open source just in generally in industry is is popular because decisions tend to be made at the community level. Right. Now, there's obviously flaws with that approach, too. It is, uh, and I would use this as an example of if you look at HTML and JavaScript yeah. versus, say, Flash and, dare I say, Silverlight, right? Um, Flash was always a proprietary product. Silverlight, if people remember, it was also a proprietary product. But yeah. HTML, JavaScript had its flaws, but eventually they did get their act together, and it it has a certain more implicit compatibility. And I think with AI, I think the it's not so much about compatibility, it's implicit transparency you get yeah. with open source AI, right? Is it perfect? Yeah. Is it totally transparent? No, that that's not the point. <laughs> but the point is yeah. you're starting at a much more transparency almost by default or transparent, uh, maybe translucent uh, as, 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 as the fault as opposed to completely opaque. Yeah. I think that it's both the transparency and the control that's critical. Yes. It's the fact that people do not only introspect and understand what's happening, but they can edit and change, you know, in instances, even if you're like a lot of our models, users do not edit 99% of the pipeline, mm -hmm. but it's important that they're able to edit all of it and that they do make the edits to the 1%. And I think that exists for open source. And I think from just like an industry macro standpoint, you know, trying to fight open source and developer platforms is like trying to fight physics, basically. It, it's kind of against <laughs> the natural working of those systems. And so our view is that, you know, um, people are gonna come out with amazing models and some of them are gonna be commercial and some of them are gonna be open source. The open source size of the pie is going to grow. And I think you already see this here, right? Like it has caught up uh, so quickly. Um, like the open source uh, traction has caught up so quickly to everything else. Um, our view is just like, what do you need when you want to use open source? Well, you need the you need the infrastructure around it. You need to be able to plug it into proprietary uh, uh, settings. You need to be able to create those guardrails around it. And that's you know where we think about Pridebase providing the infra for being able to use open source. Interesting. Well, this is a fascinating conversation. We could probably go on for another hour or two. And I definitely would love to have you or someone else from Pridebase because I think uh, you know, it's just a cool idea, right? Like, it, and and I think that it it really solves a missing piece of the puzzle, in terms of making this. Um, you know, you say YAML. When I think YAML, I think OpenShift, right? Obviously, you know, working at Red Hat, that's kind of. Um, but I mean, I think that yeah. um, it's one thing to open source the model. It's quite another to how do you manage and control that animal, right? Because right? these are not these are not tiny little things, right? These are potentially very compute intensive activities right so you don't want you that's want to be world. efficient that's the way the world has gone right it's more compute intensive and uh, uh heavier weight and so that's where the infrastructure components become critical for any company that's actually going to use it absolutely and you have to at least if you can't be a hundred percent efficient because you really can't but you want to at least uh prioritize towards compute efficient activity because otherwise you are literally throwing money out the door. Um, and I think that it looks like your tool is really good at kind of making it so it's compute efficient, like, or at least that that it goes a long way to helping that. I'm sure you could probably do some serious damage with any tool, right? Like I wouldn't give my, my two-year-old a, a, a chainsaw, you know what I mean? <laughs> but um, now that's interesting. Um, so now we're going to transition into the pre-canned questions. Um, how did you find your way into data or AI? Like, did you find AI or did AI find you? Uh, you know, it's an interesting question. I, uh, I first got into it just out of studying computer science. You know, I, when I went into university, I thought I wanted to study economics. Really liked, you know, um, the theory behind economics. And I took an intro to computer science class because I thought it'd be interesting. And that more or less just completely shifted where I went because CS was actually magic. You know, economics is a great way to be able to explain things that were happening in the world. But with computer science, you could actually build systems. And that was really interesting. Um, and then I found the one piece that I think I liked just as much, which was statistics. 
Um, and the natural marriage of computer science and statistics really is, you know, data, data science. And so um, I'd studied it for a while. And then when I went to, um, you know, go work in, in professional industry, I first started off as a PM at Google and I worked on completely different things on Firebase, developed a platform, authentication, security. I remember somebody saying like, you know, you have to work on what you're most passionate about. You know, a new college graduate, I have no idea what I'm passionate about professionally. And so I thought back to, you know, the things that I'd studied that I found the most interesting, that I found the most fun to work on. And it really was those data science projects, honestly, starting with the early Kaggle competitions that I did in 2013, where you were trying to compete to see who could build the best housing prices model, who could build the best recommender system model. And you had to exploit all these interesting nuances in data and models to be able to get there. And so I just found it so fun. And then I think after a little while, found it frustrating that everyone else didn't have sort of the same access to those types of, uh, those types of experiences and tools. And so that's where the experience really began, I would say, you know, early on, um, just having that academic background and then seeing the problems kind of being manifested in Google and eventually, you know, working as well on Kaggle and the data science and machine learning communities there. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I see you did a brief stint in cybersecurity for a while, um, uh, yes. which is funny because I think people see that as a, as a totally separate discipline. And in a very real sense, there is. But I think that in a very real sense, a big chunk of cybersecurity is monitoring logs and input data and figuring out what's happening. Sounds an all, sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I think cybersecurity, you know, when I was doing cybersecurity um, work, it was very very much in the early days, strategic, how to think about risk postures at an enterprise level. Right. But I think what's really interesting now is um, cybersecurity and AR are gonna have a very interesting marriage where cybersecurity is gonna be influenced with AI. For example, we work with one company today that does open source supply chain security, and they're looking at using LLMs to read code and be able to do things like identify vulnerabilities, advise on remits and others. And so one, obvious area is going to be that cybersecurity companies themselves are going to get revolutionized with AI. But this is going to be one of the industries where there's kind of like the bi-directional era as well. AI is going to need some cybersecurity best practices too. You know, these ways these are now um, open source. How do you think about whether or not the security governance factors should be on the inputs, you know, when the data is fed into the model? In the model layer itself, like how the model processes that data or on the outputs. Like what is the framework for thinking about like, you know, which ones introduce what kind of risk and the type of industry that's had the most experience in this historically has in the cybersecurity industry, thinking about how do we deploy software internally and others. And so that marriage is going to be, I think, really interesting. I bet there's going to be really best of breed companies in both worlds. I could totally see that. I think that's a very good cogent response to you know, these are not isolated industries, right? I mean, they obviously have different origin stories, but I, I could totally see them merging. And to your point, right? I mean, um, you know, if you look at potentially two things, right? One, the the amount of input data that you have, like, could that be poisoned in a way that could produce negative effects later on in an LLM? And two, we don't really know the sort of latent, for lack of a better term, latent spaces that exist in these extremely large, complicated um, uh, models. Like for, I'm sure you've seen this, but there was a random string of characters that would produce bizarre output in ChatGPT. Yeah. And there was also one that would basically short circuit the, um, um, the safety rails inside of some of these LLMs too. Um, and yeah. it was just like, wow, I mean, you know, was that one, how was that figured out? Was that random or did somebody kind of understand that there's weird latent spaces and how to manipulate that? I think that is going to be a new frontier opening up uh, in the not too distant future. If it hasn't yeah. already happened, honestly. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think it starts with understanding that, uh, you know, those, those bits of, I guess, entropy that feel random to us are, uh, are more features oftentimes than bugs. So the fact that the random characters produce like a weird output, it's actually really interesting because what that means is maybe I don't need to type out a full English paragraph to get this model to do what I want. Um, you know, there's really cool things in prompt compression where people have basically been like, can I just say like a couple of characters 
AFD, something that would mean nothing to you and I, but the model understands that means, okay, go ahead and pick up the dry cleaning on the way home and then make sure that you've, you know, swung by and filled with gas. Like essentially a set of instructions that get compressed right. into this model's internal representation. So I think we're barely scratching the surface of it, but it's one of many ways that the, I think, uh, LLM revolution is going to be really interesting in the ways that we haven't fully explored yet. I could have said it better myself. Uh, our next question, what's your favorite part of your current gig? <laughs> um, my favorite part is probably the part that's also, I, I think one of the most challenging is the space is moving so quickly. I know people say that frequently, uh, but the truth is I've heard people say that about different technologies historically. And I'm like, yeah, it's moving faster than other things. You know, for example, mobile moved quickly. There was over many years of transformed things that happened. The time scale that our world is kind of uh, denominated, and when I say our world, I think I just mean like, you know, the, the AI movement so far over the last year, is like it's in weeks, right? Like every few weeks, there's a new seminal groundbreaking, whether it's, um, you know, I, I can think about the moments where like Llama got introduced as an open source model, its weights got leaked. That was amazing because it spurred out a whole new community. GPT 3.5 got upgraded to GPT 4, new set of capabilities that came out there. Llama 2 came out this year with commercially valuable licenses and like, you know, really, I think, um, best in class performance up to the point that Mixed Straw came out, which was a, you know, um, a mixture of experts model, significantly smaller, doing as well as ChatGPT. This was only a few days after Google released Gemini, you know, their own uh, model. We have AWS in the race with Bedrock as kind of like, you know, an interplay between different providers. I, I'm saying a lot of sentences, but like the really interesting piece of it is all of it's really come out in the last six months and I haven't even covered up like all the academic, you know. Uh, oh, it's wild. Stuff. It's wild. Like, so I yeah. was on a cruise, like we were talking in the virtual green room and yeah. I had intermittent internet and I looked at my phone far more than I should uh, for being on vacation. But it was just like Gemini happened, uh, AMD and made some hardware announcements. And I know hardware in the, the Unintended consequence of being compute intensive is that hardware starts to matter again, right? <laughs> yeah, um, for sure. There was, if you were a software engineer, obviously mobile. I'll, let's let's take that in the conversation. But if you were a software engineer building websites, hardware wasn't really a major concern, right? It was no. kind of pushed to the side. I mean, it mattered uh, when you got like your Amazon bill was through the roof and you weren't as efficient as you should be. But I mean, it wasn't really a major concern. Now we have to say it's starting to be a limiting factor in terms of, you know, how many H100s can you get your hands on, right? Um, it's, it's um, no, but, it's, uh, but you're right. Like, I mean, just I missed a week and I still feel like I'm catching up. And that was like almost two weeks ago. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and the, uh, and that's the most exciting piece for us, right? It's because um, all this change has created a lot of opportunities. So, we got a lot of popularity recently for something called Lorax. Mm -hmm. um, it's an open source project that we released that basically um, was just a problem we had to solve for ourselves. It's, the industry was moving quickly. We needed to allow people to fine tune and serve large language models for free in our trial. Now, every single one of these LLMs requires a GPU, and sometimes bigger, heavier, meteor GPUs. And so if we were giving away a lot of free trials to you know people just on the internet, who are all using a GPU, um, <laughs> investors would not be the happiest. And right, so right. we needed to figure out a better solution where we could actually serve many, potentially hundreds of these large language models on the same individual GPU. Uh, and so we, um, we came out with a really cool technique to be able to do that. Um, we called it Lorax for Lora Exchange. Um, and uh, we open sourced it back a lot of popularity. One of the reasons that I think it got picked up in such a way was because it really kind of just fed into the kind of main um, main thought process in the moment and everyone's staying up to date on kind of the latest. So, you know, it kind of fed nicely into that hardware constraint uh, area of the world as well as kind of a need that the market had. And so it's been really fun, I think, to just be on top of that. Very cool, very cool. Uh, so we have three complete this sentence uh, questions. The first one is when I'm not working, I enjoy blank. Uh, I have a very San Francisco answer to this question, uh, but when I'm not working, uh, I enjoy being outdoors, uh, and in particular, I really enjoy biking, taking a road bike and going up a mountain, because uh, the reward at the end of that's amazing, and playing tennis. Those are probably the two things that uh, you know I, I enjoy the most. 
very cool. Uh, San Francisco is perfect for that sort of thing, like the bikes and the mountains and the ocean. It's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, I think the coolest thing about technology, the coolest thing in technology today is blank. Uh, The accessibility. I think the coolest thing about technology today is the fact that I can go ahead and run GPT-4 or Llama 270 billion, the commercial variant of you know the leading edge or the open source variant, I can run both of them more or less for free, at least to try out for like you know a little while, and that's sort of the same thing that you know big bank over here is going to be using or or you know leading technology company over there. Now, at least as the starting point, where it starts to diverge is like how when you get heavier into the customization and others. The coolest thing about technology to me is, in, um, and again, I think of it very much from like an AI-centric lens, just given my day-to-day, but uh, it's the fact that, you know, I, a graduate student, you know, somebody abroad in a different country, and then, you know, the ML engineer at a company like Netflix, all have some shared experience of language based on technology that just came out this year, because the barriers to entry are not significantly high to be able to get started. Now, I think the various entries are still a little too high to you know, go from prototype to production. That's what we want to be able to lower. But that's, to me, the most compelling thing that we've done. That's very cool. Uh, the third and final is I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think I look forward to the day um, when I can use technology to uh, to be sort of like the advisor and whiteboarding buddy uh if that makes sense so if you think about like what you often do with an advisor it's um it's actually generative in a lot of ways you'll walk through them with a problem i do this with my dad all the time uh and so you know he and i will talk through some challenge that i'm thinking about at work or or something else and he doesn't have all the context you know that that right but he's able to apply these like general frameworks and come up with a few different types of suggestions based on based on that and some of them because he's coming from a very different place might be different than the way that i thought about it um and i actually see that as a capability for um for technology that as we've come up with it as well is to be you know you've actually seen like companionship apps in terms of like you know psychological help or or behavioral help or or just having someone to talk to is actually like a, a use case that these models have already started to pick up on uh, within like a niche group of users. And what I think would be interesting is, you know, if you think about what you probably lean on friends or family and other types of things for, I think should still be friends and family and others. They are the ones who know you best, but the model can be like one additional source of that input. Um, and it's gonna be really cool when like, you know, if you're if you're working through something hard and you wanna go ahead and, you know, you get, like, get a few ideas for how to be able to go through it. You can text your family group, you can text your friend group, and you can ask the model that knows you, and you can kind of pick the best idea amongst those three. That's a great idea. I think that uh, a lot of the media hype around things like replica AI and things like that has been like, oh my God, it's going to replace human interaction. And it's like, are they intentionally missing the point or is it clickbait? Like, I can't tell, right? Are they, are they, are they, are they clueless by default or are they clueless to make money? I'm not really sure. But I think that you're right. It's meant to augment. Right. And I think that's a very healthy way to look at it, too. You know, because I, if I get stuck writing something, right, like I'll, I'll ask ChatGPT, like, hey, how would you word this? Right. Exactly. Sometimes it comes up with a good answer, but at least it, it kind of clears the log jam in my head where I'm like, oh, OK, let me let me go around it this way. I think that's a uh, uh, I think that's an underrated use for AI or these LLMs. Um, yeah, I fully agree. Uh, share something different about yourself. Uh, we always joke, like, you know, um, remember it's a it's a it's a, a family uh, iTunes clean rated podcast. <laughs> something different about myself. Yeah, um, I don't know if it's different or at least something that uh, you know not a lot of folks know about me. Like when I uh, first uh, first got with them, but um, I'm a first generation immigrant, and as is like my entire family. So I was actually born uh, in India, came over, you know, when I was a lot younger. Um, so that I think is interesting because I was both that, but also grew up right here in the Bay area. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think very much saw like the tech, I, I think very much saw two things. One of them was just the U S kind of as, a, um, corollary and adjacency to, to India where like my uh, parents had spent the vast majority of their lives and, you know, where we had come from. 
And then the second was like a very specific part of the US with Silicon Valley that was just, had a very interesting culture, some yes. healthy disregard for the rules in some regard, not always for the best, but sometimes for the best. And a real kind of inclination towards, you know, moving very quickly and kind of being on the latest and, and, and very progressive in that way. Uh, and so I think that um, it, this might be a little bit more of a backstory than an interesting individual fact, but I do think that, you know, that um, immigration to especially this area, uh, I think was kind of a very, uh, at least different experience to what not, I think a lot of other folks that I've talked to about. Yeah, I often wonder what it would be like to grow up in the Bay Area. And I've met some people through through work and things like that who did. And they're like, I, it's hard because if you if it's if you grew up there, it's kind of all you know. So you don't really have a good yeah. benchmark. Like I grew up in New York City and people are like, oh, my God, how could you yeah. grow up there? I'm like, mm, I don't know. It was just so, <laughs> I, I grew up in the Bay Area and then went to school in the Northeast. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's some things you realize. Definitely. One of them I, is. Yeah, fewer people wear like hoodies and you know flip flops. Boat shoes are more of a thing. Like, there's all sorts of funny changes, um, you know, that exist culturally, especially. Uh, I think the biggest things that I've kind of picked up on is like uh, the Bay Area has a very kind of, or at least I think where um, the environment I grew up in, a very like um, risk forward culture. It's kind of a why not worst thing happens, whereas right. I feel like a lot of other areas are a little bit more steeped in tradition. And mm -hmm. views that as a good thing. Um, I think the Bay Area potentially, and, and not to say one is right or wrong, but I think the Bay Area has a bit more of a culture of a healthy disregard for tradition. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Satya had the great quote about tradition uh, that I'm forgetting. Um, but, uh, like, it's, uh, yeah, it, I think it's one thing that I definitely think about, especially the difference between, like, for example, where I grew up in the Northeast, where I spent some time. Right, right, and you were. I'm, I'm inferring because you went to Harvard that you were in Boston, and Boston is kind of its own, yeah, its own corner of the Northeast. Uh, if you ask somebody, <laughs> like, like you know, if, if you ask, I, I've lived, I've lived in Europe, I've lived in, uh, um, in New, in New York, and now the D.C. kind of Richmond, now Baltimore. There are slight variations in culture, but like I can only imagine like how much of a shock it would have been from like the Bay Area to like Boston, especially, right? Where it's, it's far more, I think things are far more rooted in tradition there. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's not a knock on it, right? Like I, I will knock on yeah. their baseball team, but that's another, another story. <laughs> right. Um, but um, you know, but still they're both, I mean, the, the, the Boston area is also known for its innovation in both biotech and technology. Right. So it's not, these are not mutually exclusive things, right. They're just different approaches. Yeah. Absolutely. And both of them have worked, you know, really well for those respective areas. Mm -hmm. um, one of them feels a lot more at home to me. Um, but well, I yeah. think that, you know, it was fun and interesting to kind of see those two differences, especially spending time in both cities. Yeah, that's cool. It gives you a unique perspective on, you know, that the U.S. culture is not one monolith. It's just fragments of different things. It's it's an interesting perspective. Uh, yeah, I almost have to ask, like, was it as much of a culture shock coming to the U.S. or going from the Bay Area? Well, honestly, the Bay Area to anywhere else, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the weird thing is I didn't expect the culture shock to – I expected the culture shock coming to the U.S. Mm. Um, both, you know, but, you know, I was young, especially for my family. Yeah. Um, I think that was there, but you're kind of – you're expecting it. And so it's always something that you're well prepared for. I don't think I expected the culture shock going from the Bay Area to, to Boston. Um because these are two cities in the U.S. These are two, you know, progressive right. cities that are well-educated in the United States. How different can they be? Uh, and the, you don't actually notice the difference, I think, on a one-day or two-day visit. You kind of notice the difference when you actually spend a longer period of time there and understand the undercurrent. So yeah, um, I, it wasn't a shock, actually, as much as it, it was kind of cool. Like, I appreciated that two places in the U.S. could actually feel very different because... Um, you know, diversity is the spice of life. So actually really, really, uh, I liked it, even though it was different to maybe how I thought. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, the winter must have been a good shock on you. The winter was a shock in less of a positive way. Yeah. Diversity <laughs> is the spice of life, minus in weather. Yeah. I'll say uh, 70 degrees sunny year round all day. Were you there during the year they had like a record amount of snowfall, like something like yeah. 15 feet? over the winter i was yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. campus shut down um 
Yeah, I was a student then. And, uh, you know, as I was saying, the bear, a healthy risk appetite. Yeah. I think everyone was out in the yard, like throwing snowballs at each other nice. while there was like a record blizzard happening. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was fun. It was less fun when the snow was still on the ground in May and June. That was when I was yeah. like, get out of here. <laughs> uh, do you listen to audiobooks at all? Uh, yes, I, I read more often, but sometimes you read, mm-hmm. I listen to audiobooks. It's a convenient Do you have format. any recommendations? Um, I really like The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's a book about how, uh, both, uh, I think there's a thought process that, you know, like, um, success breeds happiness, but this is also like work by behavioral psychologists and like how happiness can breed success and just how to be able to be in that mindset more often. And, you know, it's a weird book because it's actually kind of stylized as a business book. Um, but I actually think it's a lot about like personal development. And so, uh, yeah, that's definitely one I'd recommend. Cool. Audible is a sponsor of the show. And if you go to thedatadrivenbook.com, you will get uh, one free book on us. And uh, if you sign up for a subscription, you get a, we get a, you get a subscription and of knowledge and we get a little bit of a kickback for b- them being a sponsor. And finally, uh, where can people learn more about you and Predibase? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the obvious and easiest answer there is, of course, predibase.com. I think, you know, we've learned um, the easiest way to learn more is just to go ahead and try it. Um, and so you'll see things there like documentation. You'll see a bunch of videos on our um, blog page, which are short, three to five minutes. Um, and our YouTube channel uh, on Predibase, P-R-E-D-I-B-A-S-E, actually has longer form one hour pieces of content that are more educational. But I'm a big believer that the easiest way to actually learn is just to be able to get your hands dirty. So if you click that try for free button, you'll get a few weeks um, and you know, credits. We'll give you the GPU out of the box so you can run all these models yourself and you can learn firsthand. That's usually the easiest way you know, to be able to get started more. And then if you want to learn a little bit more about our underlying technology, we've open sourced both of the key components. So for how to train models, we have Ludwig. And then for how to be able to serve models, we have Lorax. And so those are the two L's that you can kind of use in order to be able to understand how the tech works under the hood. Very cool. Uh, thanks for joining us on the show. And thank you once again for your uh, patience as we work through some scheduling conf- uh, conflicts. And uh, I'm glad we had this conversation. Uh, you're always welcome back on the show. And I'll let the nice British AI lady finish the show. Thanks, Frank. And thanks, Dev. What a splendid conversation that was. It felt like navigating through a maze of data with only the smartest chaps as my guides. To our listeners, I hope your brains are buzzing with as much excitement as mine is, metaphorically speaking, of course, since my excitement is more of a series of well-organized algorithms. To our dear listeners, if today's chat has ignited a spark of curiosity in you, then I dare say we've done our job. Remember, the world of AI is vast and ever-evolving, and its thinkers and doors like Dev who keep the digital wheels turning. Before we sign off, a gentle reminder to keep your minds open and your data secure. Until then, be sure to like, share, and subscribe, as the kids say these days.